is essential for us to be able to pursue happiness. But I think today that we've distorted that in a way that, in fact, uh, makes it very difficult to find happiness, pursuing freedom in the way that our culture does. And then the question of what is truth, <clears throat> again, one that has become very, very much a source of great confusion uh, in the country in general and on the college campus in particular. Well, I want to go way back to the 1200s and early 1300s to begin our discussion this morning talking about two views of freedom from two rather famous monks. William of Ockham, probably most famous if you've heard of the term Ockham's razor, uh, was a early person who thought in a rather uh, different way about the whole idea of what was freedom about. And in his thoughts, he began a chain of events <clears throat> that is, I think, probably the groundswell of what has become our current view of freedom in our culture today. First of all, Occam denied that there were universal concepts, including human nature. He said there's no such thing as human nature. And as a result, <clears throat> there is no basis for believing in the principles of human behavior that we would call morality. So what Occam denied early on, this was many, many years ago, 700 years ago, was that there's no such thing as a human nature. There's no such thing as human morality. Human morality is simply... Uh, expressed in the choices that we make, and those choices should be absolute and free. What Occam affirmed then was what I will call a freedom of indifference. It was a freedom that manifests itself only in the right to choose without any regard to what choice was actually made. And in Occam's way of thinking about things, the only important thing was to have a choice. It's interesting today how oftentimes our political uh, debates are framed in terms of what, pro choice, as if the choice is, in fact, the most important issue, uh, not the fact that a choice A may be very uh, inferior to, for example, a choice B. Freedom is a matter of self-assertion. It's a matter of power in our contemporary culture. Will is defined as uh, the only important human attribute, and choice is our only shared value. So it's not what we choose, what we value that's important. It's the fact that we all value choice as being a quiescent value in our culture. And I say we in the, in the rather general sense of our, our larger uh, nation, not necessarily within the Christian community. William Ockham's journey inevitably led to Nietzsche's will to power with a radical autonomy, with self-creating selves, pursuing self-actualization and self-affirmation. And probably the theme song for this movement, if there were to be a theme song, would be Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, right? And I think today we have seen this way of thinking become very pervasive in our culture today. The idea that the only thing that is really important is human autonomy. Our freedom to do as we like, to choose as we like, to live as we will, without any restraint. This is a very negative view of freedom because it really doesn't view freedom in any positive sense. It views it as the absence of constraints to do as you might. Proverbs 14.12, I think, speaks to the outcome that this often produces. There's a way that seems right to man, but the ends lead to destruction or to death. The book of Judges, if you've read that carefully through and wondered, why is this in the Bible? The book of Judges is in many ways just a horror story after next horror story after next horror story. It just goes on and on and on. It's really, if you were to rate it as a movie, it would at least be R-rated. 
many of the things that happened in there. And yet the theme of the book of Judges is in those days, Israel did not have a king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I think the book of Judges is a picture as our current culture today is of what happens when people choose to live with this, I think, very unbiblical view of freedom as what? Being the freedom to do whatever you like. The complete and total absence from restraint and somehow the idea that it's that sort of freedom that ultimately leads to happiness. Thomas Aquinas, interestingly enough, uh, writing at about the same time uh, in the late 1200s, combined biblical principles with insights from Aristotle to develop the idea of a positive freedom, which was not just the absence of restraint. Aquinas claimed that freedom, from a Christian perspective, was freedom for excellence. It's the capacity to choose wisely and to act well as a matter of habit, as an outgrowth of virtue, which is essential if we're going to achieve any measure of human happiness. So Aquinas very much believed that that the right exercise of freedom was essential if we were going to produce the happiness that, uh, uh, that we seek. Uh, Aristotle said virtue is not an act, but, an ha- but a habit. I think biblically speaking, we would say that there's more to this story than what Aristotle said, or frankly, more than what uh, Aquinas said, because we recognize that, in fact, uh, the character that allows us to choose rightly uh, is a character that only the Holy Spirit can ultimately develop uh, in the redeemed hearts of people who have come to know Christ. Galatians 5:22 and 23 talks about what I would call a really radical makeover. As we've been visiting with Christy and Steve, we watched some uh, uh, recordings that they had of these makeovers where they redo people's houses, knock them down, and, and redo them. And I guess prior to that, I don't much watch much reality TV, uh, but they'd also been doing radical makeovers of people who had sort of physical deformities and stuff, and, and then they change them with all kinds of surgeries, and they end up looking gorgeous and beautiful. But I think the most radical kind of a makeover is the kind that God wants to produce in our lives. In Galatians 5:22 and 23, we read, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As the Holy Spirit produces that kind of character in our lives, then we can exercise the kind of positive freedom that I think both Aquinas and Aristotle alluded to, the freedom to choose the best, the freedom to choose excellence, the freedom to choose virtue, to live as God intended for us to live. Real freedom is not the freedom to do what you want, but the power to do what you ought. Probably a great illustration of this is that which happens when a person subjects themselves to the complete absence of freedom that occurs when you take piano lessons. Now, you've seen small children play the piano with absolute freedom, and how do they do it? Playing, 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 and they beat out on the, fun, on the, on the keys, uh, something that represents a true freedom of expression, but almost no real music. As you go through and take piano lessons, what you learn to do is to become very disciplined in conforming the movement of your fingers to the definition of the notes on the page. And with repeated practice over a long period of time, the person develops the freedom to be able to translate that which is on the sheet music into beautiful melodies. And to me, that's a great metaphor for the kind of freedom that God has in mind for us. God has painted a picture in his scriptures of how we should live. 
And part of what God wants to do then is to help us to grow in our character and our understanding so that we too can translate that beautiful music uh, that he's laid out for us in Scripture uh, into the reality of a life lived in a way that glorifies him and is very satisfying to us. If you brought your Bibles this morning, I'd like to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Probably one of the great passages in Scripture that talks about freedom. And interestingly enough, if you think about what does the Bible say about freedom, the answer is a lot less than our contemporary culture. In our contemporary culture, I would say freedom and choice are probably those the value that is held in highest esteem. And yet, as you read the Scriptures, it doesn't talk all that much about freedom. Interestingly enough, the Bible never paints uh, freedom and choice as the ultimate uh, path to real happiness. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Interestingly enough, what the Scripture paints is a picture quite contrary to what our current culture has, that the people who do not understand the freedom that we find in Christ, freedom for forgiveness for our sins, freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that's going to allow us to experience reality as God intended. And it's that kind of freedom that God has called us to, to be unshackled, to be able to live as God intended for us to live. In Galatians 5.13 Uh, Jumping down, there's some other good things in between, but let's simply focus on those uh, passages that specifically talk about freedom. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not let your, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Again, the idea that before we became Christians, we absolutely were slaves to our own sinful nature and that we were incapable of living in the freedom that God intends. For us as his creatures to live. And that now that we've come to know Christ, God has unshackled us. He set us free. But it's still possible for us to live in that old way. Uh, Much the same way a person might who simply has bad habits and good intentions. And it's very easy for us not to experience freedom if God intends it. Well, next let's talk about truth. Because we're going to see before we get finished this morning that one of the keys to experiencing the freedom that God has in mind for us is going to be connected to understanding biblical truth. There are three views of truth that I would like to mention this morning just briefly. The first is the modernist view. The modernist view is that which was pervasive probably in at least the first half and maybe the first two-thirds of the 20th century. The philosophical term for this view of modernist uh, uh, view of truth is positivism. And positivism basically says that Only that which can be quantified by empirical measurement is true. A.J. Ayers was probably one of the leading proponents of this, and it overemphasized science as a way of knowing. Is science a way of knowing? The answer is yes. Is it the only way of knowing? The answer is no. That's clearly ridiculous. And how this view ever had any traction at all, I find to be quite amazing. Because when you think of things in your life that are extremely important, many of them cannot be measured. Who can measure the love that I have for my wife? And yet it's extremely real in my life, much more real than the things that in fact can be measured. There are many things in life that I think we would all agree are not measurable, but are nevertheless a very crucial part of our life experience. 
In this view, no religion, including Christianity, can be true because none can be scientifically validated. And I think this view is deliberately an attempt, as, as many of the modern philosophies have been, one way or the other to undermine basis for a Christian faith. Uh, in a rather uh, uh, sarcastic book uh, entitled uh, God is Dog Spelled Backwards, or maybe it's the other way around, I can't remember because I didn't get the book. I was just offended by it. Uh, the claim is made that dog is a more realistic concept than God. Why? Because it can be empirically validated, as if that was the ultimate uh, and only way of knowing. Interestingly enough, the premise by Ayers and others itself can't be empirically validated. So it's one of these interesting deals where you set up the whole premise, uh, and the premise itself uh, defeats itself because who can empirically verify that the only things we can know are things that are empirically verified. That's nothing more than a philosophical presupposition and one that can't be stated. And furthermore, is very naive uh, and I think overly optimistic. The fact that we could know everything through the eyes of science uh, is clearly a view which I'm happy to say in most circles has now fallen into disrepute. Okay? And I would say that very few people in the university today probably subscribe to a modernist view of truth, which is that which can only be known through scientific investigation. But unfortunately, what has replaced modernism is postmodernism. And while modernism had one kind of problems, postmodernism has a whole new set. Postmodernism is the view that anything, it's the denial that anything can be known for sure, that there is no such thing as truth with a capital T. In the postmodern view of truth, which is, I think, pervasive, certainly in liberal arts today, probably less so in engineering and, and science for reasons that are obvious, uh, is that all beliefs are either socially constructed, in other words, your way of thinking and believing is very much a result of how your culture believes, and you simply, as you grow up, adopt those, either consciously or, or subconsciously, and uh, that's how your belief system gets constructed, or alternatively, your beliefs are a result of the very unique perspective that you have. And you've probably heard the term, we all see life through our own prisms, and therefore we see reality in our own personal way, but nobody sees reality as it really is. And the net result then is that no one can ever really know what's true out there. We only have our own subjective impressions of what's out there. Now, this kind of a postmodernism leads to a very radical relativism, and that, in fact, has become the pervasive view at the university. Second to choice, tolerance becomes the most important virtue in such a world. And certainly today, probably the thing that most offends people about Christianity are not the specific theological claims that Christ died on the cross for our sins and other things. What really offends people is that we claim that the Bible is truth with a capital T. That is, is, in fact, not just one of many possible views, one of many different possible ways to God, but we have the gall to claim that Christianity is the way to God and that other religious claims that are contrary to the claims of Christianity are indeed false. And so, in fact, we're uh, often accused of being bigots, of intolerant, and so forth and so on. Interesting, when I was growing up, the idea of tolerance was something quite different than today. Uh, I was taught that tolerance was learning to bear with, in, in a civil way with people who had very different opinions. And so the idea of tolerance, even if you go back to some of the, 
the writings in the 18th century was not the view that we have today. It was that we, we recognize we have fundamental differences and we can dialogue about those in a way that may be as helpful as we learn from each other and maybe converge more towards the real truth of the matter. But in today's world, tolerance has been redefined to mean an uncritical acceptance of all views as being equally valid. And the net result then is that discussions of differences, serious discussion of differences, has become uh, politically incorrect on the college campus. And we have very little real, what I think of, is dialogue uh, about things that are important in our college environment. Uh, I went to college in the 60s when the world was falling apart for all kinds of reasons, and we spent most of our time debating and discussing what was true and which view was the best. And in fact, uh, uh, it was a very healthy period in that sense. There were a lot of things that were messed up, but at least people still believed that there was a truth out there and we had to figure out which of the different truth claims was in fact so, so that we could then buy into that and use that as a way of directing our lives. Today, you very seldom encountered that kind of robust discussion of truth on campus because the idea is what? All truth is personal and subjective. I have my truth, you have your truth. The fact that we believe things that are absolutely contrary, uh, logically impossible to reconcile, is irrelevant. Uh, all truth is subjective and personal and that's basically how it's experienced. It is the Christian claim to absolute truth then that in fact drives the postmodernist into rage. Now, I would suggest that this position is much too pessimistic just as the modernist position was much too optimistic. Interesting, in the modernist view, there was no God. In the postmodernist view, there are literally a whole polythory of gods, right? And all of them are equally valid. So we've gone sort of from one extreme to the other. Interesting, in the Judeo-Christian view of truth, uh, it, in fact, combines, in some sense, these views in a way that I think uh, uh, balances the extremes of both, one being much too pessimistic, the other being much too optimistic. It combines the modern thinker's insistence on objective truth, that's the modernist view, which, in fact, we certainly can affirm, while acknowledging that our experience of life causes each of us to have some difference in the way that we see things. The Judeo-Christian view recognizes truth as a representation of reality, at multiple levels, and believes that such insights can only ultimately be made by the Creator. The postmodernist is true in one sense as we view the world, each of us, from our own limited perspective and with our own prior background, will probably not be able to see reality as it really is in a completely accurate way. The only hope for seeing reality as it really is is if you could somehow step outside of that and be able to see in a sense, from the outside, what we can't see from our limited vantage point. It's a problem that the fish has when the fish is in the fishbowl, uh, not being completely aware of water. Uh, that's his vantage point. The people on the outside of the fishbowl see things that the fish will not themselves fully appreciate. And I think a belief in absolute truth has to be tied for certain to the idea that there is some creator who stands outside of time and history and who can articulate to us exactly what reality is, in fact, like. The Judeo-Christian view of truth believes the Bible gives us such insights on which we can come to see reality as it is and to live accordingly. Well, finally, let's look at the combination of truth, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, notes, if you pursue God, you will find happiness. 
If you pursue happiness, you will find neither. Let me say that again because this is a trap. Even as a Christian, we can fall into. If you pursue God, you will find happiness. If you pursue happiness, you will find neither. It's okay to desire happiness, but higher pursuits are the only way to find them. David Meyer, a Christian psychologist uh, who has written the most popular intro to psychology textbook that's used around the country, has done a rather interesting study in in which he notes that spiritually committed people are indeed the most happy, contrary to the popular stereotype. popular stereotype is what? Spiritually committed people are very sad. They live narrow, boring, dull, restricted, unhappy existences because they can't do the things that other people might do. But the reality is just the opposite. Their happiness is a result of their community, their purpose, worth living and dying for, the humility and ultimate acceptance that they find in that community, the losing and finding one's life, the eternal perspective. Psalm 16 says it well when it says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. David obviously writing a psalm to God. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Well, let's then finally try to put all of these things together, talking about the relationship of truth to freedom. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 8. One of the things that I find interesting as I've studied this topic is that the Bible has relatively little to say about freedom of the, in the sense that we often talk about it in our culture. And where it does talk about freedom, it always talks about it in the context of truth. John chapter 8, verse 31. This is a verse that's very special to me. When I went to the University of Texas uh, for seven years, there was a huge inscription on the library that was probably seven or eight feet tall because you could easily see it from the ground and it was quite high up. Uh, It was basically, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Somebody actually determined that is the most popular inscription on libraries around the world. Now, interesting, if you ask the average student walking across the mall at the University of Texas what this meant, they would almost surely say something like, you shall get a degree and be economically free. And if you said, well, who said that? He'd say, well, probably uh, John Adams, right, or uh, uh, some famous economist. Uh, probably few of them would, be, would know, and some would be shocked to discover it was actually Jesus that said that. But let's read the whole passage, John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are truly my disciples, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They asked him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, which was actually sort of revisionist history, wasn't it? (laughs) They'd been slaves a bunch of times. How can you then say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. This is a neat passage. Real freedom, according to the Christian understanding, is not the kind of freedom that was talked about by Occam, by Nietzsche, and by current cultural icons of our time. 
That freedom to do anything you want is really uh, a perpetual state of slavery to these desires that cause people to live orthogonal to reality in a way that makes their lives quite unacceptable. Jesus says the key to being free is what? Knowing the truth. And it's interesting how a modern person would understand this passage because the modern person does not believe in this concept of freedom and has no belief in truth whatsoever. And so the idea that our culture today seems to be in a big mess uh, is not surprising given our complete destruction of the biblical view of real freedom, positive freedom, uh, and our complete denial of the existence of truth. Let's turn again to Galatians chapter 6. Verses 7 and 8, and I think this is a crucial verse in understanding the nonsensical view of real freedom. People today say, what, I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. And the contemporary view of freedom is what I would think of as a kind of a a moral anarchy that allows you to do as you like. But what's the problem with doing as you like? You have to live with the consequences. You may be free to choose, but you're not free to choose your consequences. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. You reap what you sow. I think a lot of the contemporary understanding of freedom is not very different than the person who is skydiving Uh, not yet aware that their parachute is not going to open. And feeling that exhilaration of the moment as they're sort of cruising through the air uh, at faster and faster speeds and thinking, isn't this grand? And I'm so free uh, until they go to pull that ripcord and nothing happens uh, and they impact the ground at 200 miles an hour. Uh, I think that's the way many people are living today in that temporary state of enjoying the freedom before the consequences have finally come to full bloom. In John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, I'll begin with verse 12, I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. One of the great truths of the Scripture is that the Holy Spirit ministers to us and he empowers us, at least in part, by enlightening us by helping us to see reality as it is, to see God's pattern of how to live in that reality as we should, and experiencing then the freedom that comes from living in harmony with God's plans and purposes for our lives. In John chapter 1, you recall, in fact, let's, let first John, I'm sorry, first John chapter 1, we'll conclude uh, with this passage. In first John chapter 1, 
And let me conclude with this metaphor, which I think is so, so helpful in combining the things that we've been discussing this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgive our sins and purifies from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Now, the picture I have as I read this passage is uh, very much that of a person who maybe gets up in the middle of the night uh, in an unfamiliar place trying to make their way to the restroom. Okay? Staying in a, a home of some uh, friend or as we've been staying with Christy and Steve. Uh, and in the darkness and in the unfamiliarity, it's very easy to bump into things, to trip over things, to fall, to have all kinds of problems even finding your way to the door. If you can turn on a small lamp, what happens? Immediately you see where everything is and you see very easily how to find your way from where you are to where you're going without tripping, falling, busting your shins, and so forth. I think that the Scripture teaches us that God wants us to walk in the light that He has provided, in the truth, the perception of reality that He has given us in His Word. And as we're willing to walk in that light, we're going to experience life as God ultimately intended it. And as we walk in that light in fellowship with Him, we will in fact experience, I think, the happiness and the joy that God has for us. I think the problem today so often is that even as Christians, we fail to do that. Although we, in fact, accept Jesus' forgiveness for our sins through his death on the cross, we nevertheless can choose to walk in darkness, to live with the cultural influence being the defining light, in quotation marks, the defining darkness, and not experiencing the freedom that comes from living in the truth. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. One of my favorite stories as a young child was the story of a train that as it rolled down the tracks, a little baby train watched the wild stallions running in the meadows adjacent to the track. And the little train longed to be like the stallions, free to run and not constrained to the track. And one day the little train screwed up its courage and somehow managed with a heave-ho, managed to leap off of the track and land into the mud. And immediately the train discovered what, in fact, we also discover, uh, that getting off track is not the path to real freedom, right? Getting off track is the path to being stuck in the mud. That God has laid before us tracks to roll down. And as we stay on those tracks, we will experience real freedom. We will experience happiness and joy in living as God intends it. The reason that that is not our consistent experience uh, is in many cases because we have simply left the tracks and found our way into the mud. We can look out at the cultural claims that the wild stallions represent, uh, and sometimes those look seductively uh, interesting to us, yet we need to be willing to say, you know, the Bible's very clear that for me to experience life as God intended it, I should be where? Staying on track. 
knowing the truth and allowing it to give me the freedom to live life as God intends it. And as I'm rolling down those tracks, I experience life as God intends it. When I get off those tracks, uh, I find the stuckness of being in the mud. Well, let me conclude then. The Declaration of Independence says what? There is a truth that says that uh, we're entitled to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's a very, very partial story and a story that's been perverted in our time. I think that the real truth of the matter is much deeper and grander than that, that indeed God has called us to live in the freedom of his light, to know the truth and to be set free, and to experience the happiness and the joy that comes from leading our lives in a way that is well illustrated by the metaphor of walking in the light and experiencing, uh, I think, the reality uh, of a fellowship with God uh, and a uh, fulfillment of God's purposes for us that will ultimately give our lives a richness uh, and a happiness and a joy that cannot be found in any other way. Why don't we close uh, at least my part with a prayer.